This is Exit Pursued by Kaiju. Thank you for laughing at that end. <laughs> a podcast about international theater here in Japan. Uh, I am John Hillbillish Matthews. And I'm Andrew Pauses Reason Woolner. And we're back. Uh, we, when I say we're back, I mean we're back to imply that we were gone. We were not, in fact, gone, although if it just sleeping to the audience as if we were gone because we weren't releasing episodes, that might be forgiven. Yes. Um, this is ostensibly a bi-weekly podcast. Not sleeping, unfortunately. But not sleeping because no time to sleep. Because we are working on Macbeth, which is now over. Yes, finally over. We just had the uh, production week slash weekend slash fun time. I was putting time. dish soap on my face, which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, not recommended. Do you know why they actually put uh, words like nice on the hands and nice on the skin on dish soap labels? This is this is a theater company. I think that dish soap was probably off the 100 yen store shelf. So I don't think there was any nice on hands pretensions about it. Um, that would be that would be dye soap, by the way. <laughs> dye soap. Oh, that's yeah, that's pretty bad. I know you like that. I know you like that. So Macbeth was busy, and we're good to go. But uh, but guess what? It's supposed to be a nice uh, free season because we just finished Touch Me Not too. Touch Me Not was finished in mid September. It's now mid October. Night stream, and Macbeth is over. But oh no, you've got another project coming up because because you have no. You have no sense of of, of, of downtime. Well, no, someone someone like this in this case, it's not one of my own project. I was asked to do this one, and so that's kind of irresistible when you're asked to work on something really really interesting. Uh, so the the Japanese group uh, QQ Roll, that's actually nine nine Roll Cuckoo Cuckoo Roll, sorry Cuckoo Roll, they call it. Um, they 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 do sh- like shadow puppet and music shows, and they. They apparently want me to participate, which will be interesting because my Japanese is not very good and their English is not very good. So it's going to be an interesting rehearsal process. Uh, but I'm really, I'm really, I'm really kind of wound up about this. I'm, I'm really sort of eager. We start rehearsals in November, which was supposed to be my month off to get some, you know, writing done or something. But it uh, looks like I will be doing some puppetry. That'll be cool. That'll be in December uh, 22nd and 23rd. Once we have more details about that and the venue and and when stuff's going to be happening, we'll post it on the site. Speaking of the site, we have a calendar up. If you have not heard about it, it is up there. It is on the exit.ytg.jp page. And if you add a slash calendar to that, you can go and check out what's happening. It's on the front page and that calendar page, so go look at stuff. I think it's pretty good, actually. You can click through and be like, hi. There's where the event is. There's how I get contact information, and there's where the stuff it is. Yeah, it's we'll be really putting we'll be putting a lot more sort of information on there, and sort of offloading it from the from the audio, just because it's kind of boring to hear us just say dates and places and times and details. Exactly. And, and and we want you guys to be we want we want this podcast the the podcast side of this to be entertaining, informative. Yes, of course, um, but we also want to skip the stuff that you can just look at. No, I push the button. There's the information. Yeah. We'll, we'll let you know stuff. We'll let we'll let you know stuff's happening. But if you know to dig deeper, that's what the website's for. And before we jump into the upcomings, uh, let's uh, quickly mention that we're going to have James Sutherland coming in in just a second for the interview. James has a new thing that we did not mention during the interview. It's called Earthbound, or in Japanese, Judoku, which is gravity, literally. Um, there are more details on the web post for this episode. Go and check it out. It looks it looks shiny as shit. Um, from my very uneducated layman's point of view, it looks really freaking cool. So go check it out. Yeah, they've been working on like much like much like my last show. They've been working on this for a long time, so yep. it's it's bound to be interesting and solid. 
Mm. It is. That said, next thing's happening. Quickly running through this so we can go into the interview as fast as humanly possible. Uh, Sticky Cheese Man is being put on by Tokyo Theater for Children. That's at Theater Bon Bon 25th to the 27th of November. TokyoTheaterForChildren.com. Theater spelled R-E. Uh, and again, check the website. Check our website for information and links and stuff. Right. November 18th, we've got the next Apocrypha coming up. As usual, that happens at Bargari Gari. Um, it's 1,000 yen, which includes a free drink. And John is speaking at this one. I am both speaking and telling a story at this one. Yes. It's, uh, the Apocrypha is, this one is, del- this one is doubt. The theme is doubt this time. And as you know, I am a man full of doubts. So I will have one specific one that is coming up during the show. It's actually about a professional, uh, a, a serious professional mishap that happened uh, many years ago. I'm not sure if I've ever told you about this one, but it's 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 big and it still plagues me to this did, day. Did you shit in a urinal? I did not shit in a urinal. Because no. <laughs> that would be a professional mistake. <laughs> a mistake made professionally. Next thing, uh, Nerd Night. Again, this will be the fifth one, I believe, November 25th, which is a Friday, as per usual, at Good Heavens Bar, which will be the second time we've had it there. We will just have had one because we're about to go to one tonight. We're recording this on the Friday of Nerd Night, round four. Uh, 7.30 to 10.30, blah, 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 blah. Uh, sorry, nope, that's 8 to 10.30. Well, the show starts at 8. You can be there at 7.30. Yeah, you can get there early. It's fine. Whatever. 1,500 yen, free drink involved. And uh, the free Good drinks Heavens at Good Heavens are nice. They are yeah, nice. They, pretty good. I ordered a double, and I'm an idiot. That's us talking. We're going to stop talking, and then we're going to let us and James talk. Because James has come in, uh, done possibly one of the most thought-provoking interviews we've had so far. I want to allocate maximum time for this. So we're going to cut this now, and we're going to do a a fade. Let's do a fade now. Ready? Yep. <coughs> hey, actually, before the interview, uh, it's John. Hi, hello again. Um, speaking to you from the future. Uh, we had to cut quite a bit very aggressively to get to keep the content and be on time. So what I've done here is I'm going to be narrating a couple of spots in the interview between questions where the lead-in wasn't quite clear. So you'll hear me speak here and again. I promise I won't be too intrusive. Enjoy. So uh, we've been very lucky this time because a fine gentleman of uh, refined education and theater training is here with us in the studio slash my apartment slash somewhere in Yokohama. Andrew Woolner, ladies and gentlemen. Mm, <laughs> yes. No, James, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Uh, my, uh, my name is James Sutherland. Uh, I'm originally from New Zealand, a small town in New Zealand called Masterton, uh, from a province called the Wairarapa, which is uh, native, uh, native, or it's Maori, which is the native language of New Zealand. Uh, 19,000 people, so it's, it's an agricultural town. So I come from a very small place, but in retrospect now, uh, based on where I've been around the world, uh, a very, very beautiful, beautiful place. Um, I grew up there, I moved to uh, a, a larger city, uh, small in comparison to Tokyo, uh, called Wellington when I was about 18. I uh, went through my education, my university education, uh, there in Wellington uh, with a passion for uh, the theatre, many, or performing. Um, from there, I fell out of love and needed to leave the country and found myself in Japan for a couple of years. Uh, and then from Japan, I needed to continue working in the performing arts to whatever extent at that time and i landed a job actually uh, building 
uh, and delivering a, a BA Honours course in physical theatre at the East 15 Acting School in England, which is one of the top five acting schools. That's in, uh, in fairly the prestigious, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was very lucky. They were building a new campus. Um, so I spent five years doing that and found myself, you know, long story short, found myself back here in Japan about four years ago now, landed back here in Japan, and was happy to be out of the academic uh, field because I felt that what we were doing was in, in, it needed to be incredibly practical. Uh, I didn't want to become a manager or a middle manager or a, uh, someone who sat in front of a computer all day uh, when they were supposed to be doing practical kind of things and talking about the practice. I was a person who wanted to be doing it. I think maybe coming from New Zealand where, generally speaking, we are people who do and then we talk about it later. Bring it back around from where you've come from, what you've decided to produce from trying to empower the kids who come to these courses that you were that you were a part of, that you were. Um, how do you empower the people who come to you at CETA? How, how do you how do you build that environment that you allow them to make their own work? Like what's how do you how do you envision that in CETA as part of CETA? That's part of our challenge at the moment, to be really honest with you, because what we're doing actually and it's it's our it's it's through our own fault i think is we're taking an experience in a different cultural uh context and then we're coming over to a new context whether that be by choice or whether you know we're we're here we're here but we're trying to i think without enough thought to be honest with you and What we originally did was we originally basically took a series of ideas and a series of experiences and said these are important and valuable and now we are in a different uh, context culturally and we're trying to we, we tried to uh, just basically impose the same ideas and experiences and uh, expectations on a very different group of people and i think that was a mistake that it has been difficult, and I think it, because I think we've probably we didn't think about it as as uh, as deeply and as seriously as we should have. To be to be completely honest with you. Hey guys, it's me again. Uh, at this point, we ended up asking uh, James about an experience that stuck with him over the years, and uh, this is what he had to say. Who, who I don't think were you know I I heard some really fantastic stories about you know I think it was in the eighties when. Uh, you know, uh, I think Lecoq was still, you know, he was doing a lot of traveling, promoting the school. And, uh, you know, around the same time, you know, there were people like uh, Masso who were doing their thing. And there was there was crew who was doing his thing. And uh, they, they, have, they, they would have huge arguments in the theater, you know, a crowd full of people, you know. And Lecoq would come on stage and say things like, you know, mime is not about the individual. Mime is about the group. And then Masa would shout, no, no, they, they would have these huge, you know, across from the stage to the audience uh, the galleries, <laughs> having these huge arguments about, you know, the nature of, of mime, but also probably the nature of theatre itself. And whether or not it was about, you know, whether or not these guys were f dysfunctional people or what, but, you know, they were, they were in discourse about what the theatre was they were for engaged. at the time. They were engaged. Well, they were, you know, Lecoq spent eight years in, in Syracuse and he was a huge part of 
um, the intellectual, the, the Italian intellectual cultural community, like uh, rediscovering what it means to be Italian. That's how the neutral mask was discovered, because they were like, the the, the fascists, the fascists have done so many horrible things, or made us think so many horrible things about what it meant to be Italian. We need to rediscover what that means to be Italian. And so he was collaborating with these men, you know, after the Second World War. Uh, with Dario Fo as well, and with uh, Amerito Satori, who, who recently passed away. And Satori was a he was a sculptor, a sculptor. I was going to say architect, but he dropped all of his other work just to work on the on, on building and discovering the neutral mask. And it took ten years to discover that that piece, that structure of movement, that piece of architecture, that mask. And it became it has become a huge part of that particular uh, teaching from that school. So just just to just to stop stop you there. Um, so I mean I've had some experience with neutral mask because actually I ha- I've had interns from Utrecht School of the Arts, which is primarily a, it's physical theater and it's all about theater making, and so they've come in and given workshops for YTG and stuff like that. Um, that's not something that was part of my theater education, and it's likely I think maybe if we're lucky five people in our audience are going to know what neutral mask is so can you give it can you give a really quick super quick primer on that accessibility thank you andrew uh sure okay so neutral mask is um is an one of the elements of actor training uh which comes out of the lecoq school in france it's the first mask that you learn so there are so inside of the school's uh teaching curriculum there are a number of different masks that you explore. And the idea is that you, very generally, basically speaking, the idea is that you start from a, a mask or a, a structure of calm and balance. So you learn or you try to experience what that is. Uh, because most of our lives, generally speaking, are not very balanced, are they? You know, we're like, oh, my God, the bills. Oh, my God, you know, my, my girlfriend's unhappy with me. Oh, that, that new job. You know, the, you know those are states of psychological and emotional imbalance yeah so the mask doesn't it doesn't have that it doesn't experience it because it has no history it lives only in the present moment so you we so we give ourselves a kind of a fixed point uh, a, a point of departure which then allows us to move in any direction because as as performers we create habits don't we and often we will we may because of our habits approach the same role the same way we, we approach the last role. Mm-hmm. You bring something, uh, the hangover from the last role. So the mask in the very beginning of the training helps you to create a, a, a blank uh, slate, so to speak, or a white canvas for which you can then write your drama upon. Yeah? And from there, you go into another set of masks which start to encourage you to be more curious and more playful. There are technical elements of those masks which, which ask you to move in a certain way or whatnot. And then you start, and those masks also, the neutral mask does not speak. So there is a small opening in the mouth, but it looks more like the mask has, has been surprised. Like, <sighs> so there's a feeling of discovery. The mask is a, the first mask is a mask of discovery. So when you approach something, you're always approaching it for the first time. So it is man or woman in a perpetual state of discovery. And that's what, uh, through that mask, that's what uh, the actors are trying to embody and try to learn, you know, the, the first 
the first time, mm. the first time. Because when the actor walks on stage, it's not the first time for the actor. But when the character walks on stage, it's always the first time. Well, I think at a very basic level, if you're, if you're, I mean, and this goes for a lot of mask work, not just not just neutral mask work, but it's it's a useful tool for people with who have had not had any kind of physical training. I find to get into the idea of expressing stuff through your body, because if you got a mask on your face, you can't do your habits. But I mean, goddamn, have you ever seen me acting my eyebrows all over the goddamn place? Um, and that's like that's one of that's it's it's an intro it's a it's a nice tool. And uh, sometimes when I teach classes that aren't even about that, they're, I'm very, very just uh, text, even text breakdown classes. Sometimes I'll bring fake, I've got these fake neutral masks that uh, one of the interns made for me out of like paper mache and just stick them on the actors and have them, have them go through the beats in the scene without language, just in order to, to get out of their faces, just to, just to be in the moment and to just to, to be there. That was one of that was one of the other origins of the neutral mask. It actually has also been heavily influenced by uh, Jacques Capot. So Jacques Capot had the same problem. He he left you know the the centres of Paris, went out to the countryside in Burgundy, because he wanted to leave the the classical mess behind him and the the, the, the star system and you know the best actors or the, the most most celebrated actors get all the best roles. Mm. Took everyone out to the countryside and he noticed, I think he did. He was doing an exercise with, with one woman at the time and she was not using her body. So he put a handkerchief over her face <laughs> because that's all they had at the time. Yes. And but the point of that, you know, was to ask her to express herself through something other than simply her face. Now, this is pre, not pre-pre, but, you know, close to the, you know, the, the beginnings of cinema. So we're not even we're not even asking people to you know to work in that way cinematically at that point, but even in the theatre they had just lost the use of their uh, their bodies as a, as a as a tool for expression, and then from there they were they were doing a lot of mask work, a lot of mask discovery, a lot of mask making with Jean Dastey and uh, Suzanne Bing because they were working on uh, Noor. Uh, performances as well at the same time. Mm. Suzanne Bing, by the way, was heavily influential in shifting the paradigms of how we actually look at theatre and how we play play theatre. So the idea of play in the theatre and to play, you know, a play is play, as Peter Brooks says, was uh, you know was very heavily influenced by the work and the, the research of Suzanne Bing. It wasn't Capot; it was Bing who was doing all the work. Mm. Uh, and Lecoq actually took some of those ideas, you know, he took, because he was working with the noble mask, which is the, the origin of the neutral mask, which came out of the work that uh, Kapoor and Bing were doing with their team, you know, in the countryside. Have you considered writing anything? Uh, Have you considered making an audiobook? I thought about it, but what I, what I want to do in terms of, if, if I want to write something, I want to be a little bit older. I feel like um, all I'm going to be doing now is just simply regurgitating the words of other people. Mm -hmm. And... I feel an, a, a more interesting book. It should, I think it should possibly be a book for, um, for people who are working in Japan, so it needs to be translated into Japanese. And it needs to be that thing that we talked about much, much earlier. It can't be something you just simply... It can't be like cultural appropriation. Oh, so what's popular and important over there should be done here. Now, we're not trying to say that without teaching. That's, first of all, not timely anyway. No, well, actually, in a way, it is timely. It is timely because if you look what's happening politically in this country, and mm -hmm. they, you know, the government want to rewrite the constitution, they want to actually delete the whole human rights amendments from the constitution. 
Uh, Jake Edelstein and Marty Yamamoto were writing a great article, or they referenced one the other day, where, where the government are deleting uh, all the really important elements out of the, the Constitution. You know, we, I remember seeing a, 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 a conversation, a, a table talk about political theatre back in New Zealand, and an, uh, an actress and a teacher got up and said, oh, political theatre, political theatre. What is political theatre may have been the, the subject of the, of the discussion. Uh, political theatre is this, political theatre is that. And then one of my teachers, who actually was trained by Philippe Goulier, who was one of the boldest theatre directors in New Zealand, um, and my supervisor in my master's degree, he just kept leaning over to the microphone and saying, all theatre is political. And then she was like, oh, well, well it's political theatre. You know, this way that we kind of segregate, it's the same thing with physical theatre. In England, it's, it's wonderfully prevalent. Everything gets put in a box Everything gets popped in a box and uh, for for our safety. But, oh, oh, that's that's circus, or that's dance, or that's that's physical theatre, or that's straight, you know, whatever. Um, is it for our safety or is it for marketing? Well, I don't get. It. I don't really give a what it's for, to be honest with you. I, I think that you know, theatre is political because you know the, the the root of the word pol- politics comes from polis, which is which means people. So all theatre should be about people. You know, it's a it's a collective shared experience, and I think that's one of the things that we sometimes forget when we go to the theatre, that it's an experience to go to the theatre. That's the one thing. The immediacy of the theatre is what is what it will always have over the cinema, because it's happening right now. And we 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 go there to experience that immediacy, and then later we go we we will understand. So understanding comes later. So that's a very interesting thing. I think that, that we've found in at least the sharing of the the, the teaching that we're doing, some of, the, some of the teaching, is that the way that people, I think, uh, the way of learning in Japan is very different from what we experience the way of learning to be in, in Europe. How uh, so? Which simply means people want to come in the door and they want to understand it, what it is that you are giving them first. So they won't move until you tell them what it is, how to do it. You know, you've got to really. But then what you're doing is you and they don't have they don't they're not experiencing, it. and it's through the experiencing that the learning comes. So it's very empirical research, in a sense. Prescriptive versus guiding, perhaps. Well, you 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 know, a lot of the teaching in the. Uh, that, that has become very prevalent now is based on the idea of via negativa through the negative it's not just in France it was Poland as well it basically what you do is you close a door for someone you know, it, it, was, it was tough it was tough teaching you're not given the answer someone just says no so that door that door now is closed that offer not that offer here are some other doors and eventually you find the door you know, that it's open and you go through and then you go, you know, you go to the next level. I think Lecoq used the example one time of uh, the, hi- the high jump. So you have to set constraints inside of a pedagogy. You have to set a bar, an, ex- an expectation, for want of a better expression. And then once the student reaches the expectation, yeah, then you've got, you've got to raise the bar, don't you? Very simply. Mm-hmm. Um, which, is a, which is a vertical example of the horizontal door example but anyway we keep getting back to the teaching you've finished two shows now and you're working on your third at the moment i understand that you're going to be uh, that you're going to be showing in march of next year in 2017 to mm. my understanding mm. uh what do these shows what function do these shows serve to you once they are done it's a very good question i think 
they serve probably as a vehicle for answering the unanswered questions from the recent performances. You know, one of the things I feel that is slightly uh, disappointing is that some of the work that we, that maybe the community, not just us, uh, work so hard to put on, once it's over, it's it's over, and we don't have, there is no plan after that. So what we're at, at the moment, what we are trying to do, and we're trying to be very um, logistically savvy about, is look at the work that we've done, or look at the work that we're about to engage ourselves in, and look at it in terms of long-term planning, so so touring. Yeah, actually, it's, 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 we're doing kind of the same thing. I'm trying to. I, I've gone from an ensemble of six to like two-person shows because they're cheap to tour. Yeah. Um, but also because then I'm much more likely to either be able to keep the other person on, or to be able to like sort of rebuild the show with somebody else redeveloping that role. I won't have to train like a whole cast. It'll be two of us going sort of it's like here's the basic structure we worked out last time and now let's see what this character turns into when you're doing it and or it's a totally new character just kind of following the same same path but yeah i mean the same idea because it's really really depressing to work for when i did richard the third i worked for six months like three to five day, nights a week on that show uh, because i had to train everybody to be able to deliver the text because most people don't have that that training and it went up for I had I had three days in Yokohama and four days in Tokyo total, and those were separated by a gap of two months. But I mean, and that's unusual, right? Because I almost any any show that I did with Tokyo International players would because those are my big shows because I couldn't afford to do them on my own with large casts. Um, they were so they were co-productions, so they were unusual, and they got two weekends somewhere, but. It's depressing when I in Canada I had no money as well, but it's just it was so much cheaper to rent a theater. I had my own space. You could do a three week run, even like a little theater company could do a three week run. You get three days here if you're lucky. No, I think it's great, and um, we we in the last couple of shows and in the current show that we're building, we have been working with about an average of about five five to eight performers five to seven possibly and you know for us actually we you can't work with any more it's so tough to work with more we we uh we've been doing a lot of uh we want to do Aaron Richard the third as well mm. we've been playing Aaron Richard the third the problem at the moment and we've got people who are interested in helping us get it toured overseas we're not so close but logistically in terms of managing the people you know you can break it down to a 25 member cast you know you could Richard III. Yeah, you could do it with 20, if you're I think lucky. it was about that, 22, yeah. 25. We wanted to do it with possibly 15, which means you've got a lot of role doubling or you've got a lot of, a really interesting kind of editing of the, of the story, you know, a, a really dramaturgical challenge, you know. So, and if I may, and if I may, uh, for any stage managers possibly listening to this, you can probably imagine that it's a pain in the butt logistically as well, especially in Tokyo is my assumption. With 15, even with 15, that's, oh, that's a sizable cast. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How, what, what, uh, what part of the initial dream is still there for you? 
the initial dream of ICTA, CETA, SUSITA, and all that crap. What's what's still <laughs> SOS, NCIS, what's um, NAMBLA. NAMBLA. <laughs> We're not gonna. I'm not gonna talk about it. Uh, what what's still there? Ah, uh, well, uh, to be honest with you, I think I think we're living the dream, really, w- without sounding you know a little bit cliche. Living the dream sounds like a disco yeah, song. Yeah, I kind of feel that living way most of the time. To be honest with you, world. yeah, yeah, we're we took the midnight train and uh, here we are. You know, we uh, we give uh, we, we we share uh, our knowledge like five six times a year. That's uh, uh, you know a lot of marketing prep delivery for us, but we love doing it. Um, we really appreciate the people who have got the courage and the integrity to come along and do the work with us. Uh, we don't, we separate the teaching from our creating, to be honest with you. Uh, that's why we had Isa and Sita in the beginning. So Sita was the, the group that was doing the creating, but Isa was all about just uh, proliferating, proliferating, I should say, the, 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 the knowledge, the experience, because the idea for us was never to actually train people to do what we do. The idea was to train them to find what it is that they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. What what is it that you want to say, and how can you? What ways can you use to to help the audience identify with what it is that you want to say? So that's why it was separate, and we still do that now at the moment. We've just kind of had to had, had to condense because we couldn't run those two things separately. But the teaching is still similar in that respect. We have Incubate, which is uh, a, a workshop that we do where perhaps we are looking for uh, something creatively. We, we, we want to experiment with something. So it's a bit more about getting people together and creating stuff and seeing what happens, you know, incubating an idea uh, and using a, a series of techniques. And from that, we might find, we usually find people uh, that we want to work with through our workshops so we don't hold you know, traditional, conventional auditions. Uh, we will find the people through our workshop processes because those are things are tough, and you know people have got to come in, you know, kind of assimilate a whole bunch of new ideas and then work with someone who they don't know to create something, and that's how you you start to see really you know people for you know, how they deal with you know the creative tension, right in a situation, you know, and you look at that person, you can you go, can I work with that person for the next? Six months, eight months. Can I go on tour with him? Hopefully, six years. If yeah, 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 yeah. Can we? You're looking for someone who's. Is there long-term. a possibility of a long-term collaboration with this person? Right. Now, speaking of, I'm leaving you, Andrew. What's that? I'm leaving you. <laughs> so sorry. It's been so long. It's been so long, and such a. Six it's months. about time. V- valuable relationship. Mike. Um, so, uh, I want to go back to the episode, the question of of of, of reusing of once of, of of what the previous shows mean to you and what, how how okay. they can serve you in the future. Uh, one of the shows, one of the ideas that we've been banned, that Andrew and I've been banning about, or actually what I've been banning about, and Andrew's been, been like, oh, "That's a good idea," uh, um, is an idea of an episodic radio drama uh, on on this show on Exit. Ta-da! I think I mentioned it before on the show. Uh, but have you have you considered uh, producing more more consistently more episodics of context here? Um, you're aware of Facebook Live that's happening right now, right? Topical. Facebook Live is happening now. Mm-hmm. anybody anybody can go like live right broadcast on video. Yeah, oh. actually, we could do that. Are we, we have we, are have we the live gear. right now. <laughs> we very well could be. Uh, but Facebook Live, uh, Facebook has now got Facebook Live up, which is horribly disadvantageous for anybody who's on a major content creator. But whatever, uh, anybody who is who wants to go live on a video on Facebook, hook up the webcam, hook up the phone, hook up the whatever. It's fine. You can create whatever you want. It's fine. Um, 
one of the biggest, one of the most popular uh, productions, and of course this was an article by the New York Times, so this is not exactly uh, anything but a shill, I'm sure, but was a sort of live fact-finding exercise that someone had broadcast. It was a series of, of investigative uh, episodes where this reporter was trying to discover the, the the secret of this some story something that wasn't that really wasn't widely known and really didn't, didn't wasn't very easy to figure out as opposed to simple fact checking it was a it was a proper investigative story it was a great piece of journalism and it worked really well on on live social media and I'm not saying it would have to be live and it would have to be this much but I feel like if you're really I feel like the engagement of the audience might be and I I'm, I'm not a theater person so I will sound like a complete doof compared to the stuff you said so far in the interview but um, engagement with the audience, uh, not only in the in the production, but in the not, not sorry not, not only in the final production, but in the production process in Atec. But perhaps an episodic. We are building this over time. Here is the process, but also that itself being theater. I yeah, I think it's a very very interesting question. I think uh, and, and Facebook helps us with that in a sense be, because for me it's we, we we have a Facebook page yeah. And we've we've got about three thousand likes or something on the on the Facebook page, and for us it allows us to update the the people who follow us in real time. And it, the reason for its existence is to really uh, let people into the process of making, mm-hmm. because I for, you know for audience members and spectators generally speaking, they only ever get to see the result, and. And we are often very, very results driven. Mm. So we're always so. So essentially, as makers in the making, we are not present because we are thinking. Especially, you know, when you have to also when you are running or leading a team, and you've got to think on a number of different levels other than just the artistic level. You've got to think on yeah. the production, the management, the stage management, the timing, the calendars, the funding. The exactly, yeah. Uh, so f- for us, it's really important to have a, a format or a forum where we are uh, letting people in to the process and giving them a sense of what that looks like. In the way, whether that be slightly just angled towards publicizing or what, it doesn't matter. But or I mean, it could have also be. I mean, because the, the idea when we did showcases was it wasn't just to to show to show something. It was to get feedback on the stuff we developed because. When you work with the same people for a long time, you can get into like a like an inner loop, and then nobody on the outside. You maybe are making work that's not accessible. You become very complete. You can become very yeah. complacent. Um, and I, again, especially I've trying, if you're trying to do a thing where there's like you're trying to dissolve a hierarchy, you don't want a director. You know, anyone who's like the director, you, people maybe take turns. If you go really extreme and everybody's equal, then you maybe get something that doesn't look the way you want you necessarily want it to from the outside or you don't know how people are going to react because that, that's the other thing you can't really predict what an audience is going to think or do and so to put stuff in front of an audience and get them to talk to you afterwards that was our thing we'd do like 40 to 60 minutes of a showcase and then we'd spend like 30 to 40 minutes talking to the audience and getting their thoughts on on what we'd done and so it was actually less useful for publicity but actually really really useful for development because we could we could easily say, okay, that that scene made no sense to them. They they didn't understand it at all. Like that was a maybe it wasn't a dumb idea, but it was not an idea that translated ex, ex outside of the group. We got it, but they didn't get it. So it's it's sometimes even useful as like part of the development process, right? To actually have the audience as part of the process, 
there are two issues uh, for me. I, first of all, I think that that's a fantastic idea. I think the idea of wor uh, sharing works in progress uh, and, and getting feedback from people who are not your peers, especially, is very, very important. So, in a sense, your audience should also not be your peers. Mm. You need the audience of, uh, the, the anonymous audience. And I think possibly there's, there's the danger here uh, with some other community because a lot of the shows that are, are played for, uh, 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 that are presented, are played back to your peers. And what are your peers going to say, generally speaking? They're going to love you, aren't they? Your mum and your dad and your friends are going to love that, you. That's you need you need to play it for people who have no clue about who you are and what you're. But you need to or get who them hate there you for, or who hate you because yeah, then if they say it's good, they probably mean it. Well, that's why know, I cultivate the, the the personality of an <laughs> so that I don't I don't have the really? problem of people blowing smoke on my ass. You can rationalize <laughs> yeah, all day yeah, long, Andrew. Tell yourself what, whatever you need to tell yourself, Andrew. <laughs> but I, you know, for me, discourse is very important. So I'd prefer to have an audience who loved it and or hated it. And allow yeah. me. There's been a lot of a lot of theory, a lot of thoughts, a lot of a lot of path of a process i am a tech tool per future you are a tool what to do i am a giant tool no oh 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 jesus that unexpected oh, that was, highly unexpected it came out of nowhere i was unexpected oh, there's blood all over just his head it just keeps, oh the neck just keeps gushing i don't like this oh oh that's oh oh yeah i need to go to my safe place can we get henry to read the credits <laughs> let's get henry i'm gonna go hide under the table i'm just gonna where did it go did anyone see where it went Hey, Henry, you... No, 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 no. All right, Henry, you stay in here with the... Ka I'm going out. You stay in here with the kaiju, and oh you, God. uh... Henry, you read the credits. <laughs> it's in here somewhere, but it's okay. It, uh, okay. I'm just going to leave now. Bye! This show is produced by John Matthews, Andrew Walnut, and me, Henry Moss, in association with the Yokohama Theatre Group. Uh, special thanks to me, Henry Moss, uh, for sticking around and reading these credits after everyone else bailed. And uh, maybe also our special guest, James Sutherland. Rest in peace. Um, if you'd like to support YTG, uh, the people behind this podcast, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash YTG. That's patreon.com forward slash YTG and become a patron. Thank you.